Hello and welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Jim Rugg. I'm Ed Piscor. Going to continue our uh, historical deep dives through Wizard Magazine, number 47. This is July 1995. Before we crack this thing open, I want to invite everybody out there watching to like, follow, and subscribe to the Cartoonist Kayfabe YouTube channel if you haven't done so already. Hit that bell icon next to the subscribe button. That will notify you when we post a new video. And if it's one, if it's a comic that you want, it'll give you a leg up on the search for that comic. Sometimes we look at stuff that's a little bit hard to find, and by midday it disappears from your Ebays, Amazons, and local comic shops. So hit that notification button. You'll be the first one in line at the head of the kayfabe effect. Also, let these videos play through to the end. That allows YouTube's algorithm to share them with other comics fans. It's how we grow Cartoonist Kayfabe. It's how we've hit 60,000-plus subscribers on our quest for 6 million. So please let these things play through. We appreciate that. And now on to Wizard, 47. So as I say, Ed, July 95, I have just graduated high school, and I am not looking at Wizard Magazine anymore. <laughs> so rereading this, or reading it this week, um, kind of interesting to go back in the time capsule and see what exactly is going on, because at this point, I was almost done with, like, comics. You know, yeah. if I don't find alternative comics around this time, I'm out. Yeah, I was I was a wizard reader at this time, probably starting with issue thirty seven, I believe. But I I never uh, read this issue. I was pretty religious, uh, but that meant going to the drugstore to scoop it up or the grocery store to scoop it up. This thing, I don't know if the one half edition or the little little uh, mini comics that were packed in here were highly sought after. This comic, uh, this magazine disappeared uh, off the newsstand racks in a way that. Made Do it you know for me to what get. the mini was? I have no or, idea. Yeah, I don't either. Um, I don't know if they were doing that every issue at this point or not, because I, I didn't notice that being... Uh, usually it's called out somewhere in these issues, yeah. and uh, that didn't stand out to me. But first things first, you know, like they were running multiple covers on a lot of the Wizards at the time. This is my copy. Uh, Tom Grummet doing a Superman with the Mollet era Superman. Busily doing Judge Dredd. I got the wrong cover on this on this one, man. <laughs> yeah, and the way that it would work uh, at at the grocery store where mom and pop might have the potential to buy their young kid who has Star, uh, you know, Superman under ruse. They see this on the on the rack. Uh, if they see this, they don't know what that is, man. <laughs> That's true. And and they they might want to like shield their eye, their kids' eyes from that that stuff, man. Looking at this this biz cover though, just in preparation. I was admiring the contrast, right? Like, we have, like, almost white whites and black blacks. And we always talk about, like, the, the the sort of academic rules of color, and you don't mix black with your color. But rules are sometimes meant to be broken by people who have that mindset to to uh, exploit them in a, in, a, in a sort of positive way. And Biz is using black in his paints, there's no doubt, you know what I mean? He's using black for for the shadows, and that was just something that was always said that you just don't do, but it really made his work stand out. It's funny to look at this stuff now, because at the time, my eye would have seen these as being opposite ends of the spectrum of how you could what, what a comic book art could look like. Sure. Now I look at it, and because he's using black, it's like, wow, these really are practically the same image. Uh, <laughs> you know, in Bites so many tongue. ways. Certainly the ingredients are the same, and, and part of it is that black. But you know what it reminds me of a little bit is Frazetta. Like, Frazetta mm -hmm. has that range. Totally different composition, very different ways handling the figure. But there are similarities, I think, in the paint that uh, you could put next to a Frazetta and see kind of that range, black and white included, um, that, that there might be some similarities there. But 
Let's dig in. I don't have too much else to say about these covers. There will be a little more to say once we look at the Gary Seamus uh, editorial. Because he, <laughs> he, he really waxes all over the summit. Busy. Man, we've been chasing him for four years. Finally got one. We're so excited. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah. Tom Grummet did a cover, man. We, can, we, can't, we can't ignore that. Thanks, Tom. You wonder if this is like a last second kind of... It's not a very involved drawing. Yeah, straight on. Uh, you know, it's as dynamic as a Golden Age Superman piece of art. Yeah, it's not the best, you know... I don't care much about Superman, but that is not the best uh, version of Superman that I can imagine. So it does make me wonder if that's a last minute, like, oh, got to get this thing. Uh, so something fell through. Right. Let's get this cover <laughs> in right away. Bart Sears was too busy on Birthquake. How about Harris Comics with their first comics ad two-page spread here in the beginning? Probably a pretty expensive piece of real estate. Yeah, for sure, man. And it's it's a it's a spread, right? It, but, like, it, it makes you appreciate whoever this Nagnoski dude is who... I don't know, or I only associate him with these Harris comics, and he's writing three titles here. <laughs> yes, he is. So he's he maybe maybe you know maybe he's related to to Harris of Harris Comics or something like that. It yeah. could be. I can tell you that uh, I, I have heard of the Rook, but like Hyde Twenty Five, not not a title that has uh, crossed my path. Yeah, the the Rook was a uh, was a Warren title. There were yes, like a few I issues. I think that of might that. be why I know that. And or, I, from chess or something, <laughs> and I do think that uh, there was there was some good people who popped up in there. It might have even been like Richard Corbin had the color section or something. Wow! Uh, but oh, not, back in the day, in the Warren stuff, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, not 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 this feces. Stallone dressed up in his best uh, Judge Dredd costume. Another one of those things, man. Where like I discover Judge Dredd comics, uh, the title is the greatest title in boys' comics hi history, man. Like like you see that on a rack like you scoop that up immediately and uh i thought that i had like privileged information i'm like you guys got to see this comic judge dread how fucking cool and it was not three months later i saw an entertainment tonight or something sylvester stallone playing judge dread and i felt like i had like my finger on the pulse or something and i'm like dude i discovered judge dread and now they're making movies about it it's shocking to me that judge dread did not like dominate american comics because I would see it in, and it was probably around this time, you know, getting a lot of promo for the movie and stuff. I would see it in comic scene. I remember one issue had like a Dave Dorman pullout poster, you know, like, so it'd be like four size, times the size of a magazine. Had that on my door growing up. And it looked so cool, you know, kind of like that Bisley cover. It was painted and looked amazing. And yet doesn't really get a foothold here in America. Still, I would say is not a... a, a big popular comics character in America. But yeah, yeah, like I, I really feel like it's it's like, I don't know, the publicity department or something like that because I, like, I, I feel like I could sell that character. You'd think so. That's how I feel too. I wonder if there's a costume issue. You know, it's not the typical spandex superhero costume and so like a bunch of Wednesday dudes are like, no thank you. <laughs> the, speaking of that costume, I mean, imagine the nightmare of drawing that comic and having to draw that goddamn eagle shoulder pad. Uh, over and over and over again. Uh, it's part of what's so impressive to me. Because, yeah. I mean, like, there are a lot of people that have drawn it and drawn it well. So it looks it looks challenging, but, I mean, they f they found a lot of artists to really deliver on that. I only watched the movie uh, once on VHS, but I'm looking at that mask, and that mask is shit. Like, whenever they did the prototype Robocop and they sculpted basically a Judge Dreadhead, that looked better than this thing. Like, why don't you just keep it? I it, think they did on the on the newer movie. It's the big challenge, I think, for if you have Stallone. Right, like, yeah, you got to show it that off. That dude wants his face yeah. on the screen, and uh, that's just not Judge Dredd. That helmet's the, the thing, you know? Yeah. It's not Judge Dredd without that helmet, so 
Yeah, there's there's a lot going on there, but all right. From the top, there's your uh, Simon Bisley, the very first sentence. Finally, a Simon Bisley cover. Yeah, wearing his uh, his fanboy on his sleeve, but who can blame him? I'd be remiss if I forgot Tom Grummet, who did our newsstand cover. <laughs> He's also already promoting the uh, gala anniversary issue 50, so we've got a couple issues to go, but according to Garib, that's where Wizard evolves to the next level. So some <laughs> things to look forward to over the coming months. Techno comics and uh, <laughs> Jay Lee cover, man. At the height of their powers. It's so they, they got it right in, in certain ways, man. You get you know, an A-lister's name above the masthead, and then you get Frank Miller to, to draw yes. the Mike Danger cover, or Jay Lee to draw this Xander in the Lost Universe cover. And then, uh, if you're smart, you even put it in a poly bag so that the kids at Suncoast Video who are buying these things just assume that the cover art is the same on the inside. And when you get it, man, like... Uh, just, why don't you just turn a generation of readers off on comics? And I'm saying that because I did buy a couple issues of Prime Wordles at Suncoast Video at Century 3 Mall when I was a little dude. And yeah. that interior artwork, nonplussed, man. Yeah, that's... Uh, but I'd be curious to see kind of their whole story, Techno Comics. That had to be like an L.A. startup or something, right? Yeah, and, and you know, it just never ends. It never, ever ends. Like, these these publishers that, like, get funding... Have some publicity scheme, sell and sizzle, no stake. Never stake. Like, it's always hype machine. Right. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of non-comics makers at the top. Yeah, totally. You hear, like, dudes in wrestling talk about that when somebody shows up in pro wrestling that doesn't have a wrestling background, TV execs, whoever, you know, is running some company. The pizza guy. And, and it's like, it just can't work. Like, they just don't understand that part of it. And I feel like that's what you get with the, a lot of these comic startups where it's like, we're gonna, it's going to be our IP farm. All right, but man, you're not going to make good comics. And that, the guy with no experience in comics, it's probably not going to work out. Yeah, every now and then, like like nowadays, there's there's certain <clears throat> publishers that like you know they they recruit good talent, like or at least like recognize talent. But then you realize this person is working on five other comics, and ha they have their own creator own stuff elsewhere. So it's like you're just it's one step above just having Gene Roddenberry's name at the top. You have you know, such and such cartoonist name at the top, and he gives you, like, two days of work a month writing it because he doesn't give a fuck if his name is associated with hack material. And if you go back to, like, Mazza Kelly saying, like, his key is be the last guy to touch the comic, who's the last guy touching that techno comic? Yeah. You know, it's, it's not a good sign. Uh, this ad to me stands out in that history kind of blurs together. This is a time period. Batman Forever is, is, you know, keep that in mind as we're flipping through this this station, everybody at home, like, or through this issue. This is the time period. So this is what's going on at the DC movie level at Th this time. This was this was a incredibly, incredibly important time in history just for myself, because that's when I was in those, like, intramurals kind of uh, art classes to, like, make comic books and... Uh, you know, we, it was a class, you sign up for it, uh, at the end of the, you, you create a schedule for yourself, uh, turn everything in two weeks before it's over, the very last week you guys each get ten copies of the comic, it was my first stuff that was in print, and it started an addiction, you know, and I remember because, like, the teacher was always playing that Kiss from a Rose Seal <laughs> song music video on VHS <laughs> in the class, I man, over and over, every, every class, uh, 
that that music video would be playing. Are we <laughs> going to touch on this letter? Uh, go ahead. Yeah, man, hit it. It's really cool, man. Uh, it's it's the guy who wrote the original Turok comics, and he's just cutting promos on Valiant for basically uh, having revisionist history, even though there's mention of there being a quote-unquote archivist uh, at Valiant who's who's uh, you know drumming up some interest in, in these old properties. I guess, man, I don't know if this even existed, but the writer's talking about how uh, Valiant was doing, like, some reprints of the original, uh, like, Dell Gold Key Western mm-hmm. comics of Turok. I've never seen those reprints uh, from Valiant. But uh, there were no credits, like, in a lot of these things. And he and this dude's like, first off, you got the artist name incorrect when you did finally mention him. Second off, like, I wrote these things. You could find it here, here, here. Uh, you guys aren't doing much work. And then he and then he reached out to Steve Mazarski <laughs> to try to get a nominal royalty. Oh, uh, that probably went well. Appealing on a human level. Like, like listen, I know, I know that these comics were done before, you know, any idea of reprint or any kind of contractual thing could have been worked out. But just on a, on a human level, is it possible that you guys can do something different than what Marvel and DC have been accused of over the past couple of decades. Never heard from them. And the dude was just like, man, if you would send me like 50 bucks as like a token, a nominal appreciation, you know, that would, that would be something. So this dude is just like Aaron, lots of grievances. He is. And, and, uh, and he mentions about, you know, being asked to write the book and how that would have, uh, gone a long way. That would have been good shooter asked them to write it. But then, uh, Things didn't work out there. Of course, Shooter moving on, but they did pay him for that. But anyway, he's too busy now writing for Marvel's country music books, like Billy Ray Cyrus. And and Darkwing... <laughs> I don't even remember that existing. Yeah, me neither, man. But dude, who appears in his 4,119th comic story. I kind of believe that, man. How do you keep track of that? Is he drawing, like, uh, the, the, the slashes on the wall prison style? <laughs> I feel like Dell, like, the... the they were turning some stuff out. It's it's really interesting to think that this guy's been writing since then, you know, since since at least the fifties or whatever. Paul S. Newman, king of the comic book writers, he's taking a, fe- a feather out of uh, Howard Stern's cap. Yeah, that's pretty good. And also, uh, if your name's Paul Newman and you're not Paul Newman, you probably took some lumps growing up with that. <laughs> well, please, man, he might be older than that Paul Newman. He might be, which would make it even worse, if, probably. If he's writing four thousand something <laughs> comics. Yeah, it's a good letter. I'm glad you pulled that out because the rest of the letters, I, I don't know that anything else stood out to me. Anything else uh, big on, on your end? Not on the letters, but he does say a funny passive-aggressive thing where I guess Mr. Mazarski is preoccupied canceling books like Harbinger, Rye, and others. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what? He keeps going. He's a wordsmith. But he could have won quote-unquote acclaim in the industry if he even sent me a $10 bill in a quote-unquote valiant effort to repay someone from whom he pro- profited. <laughs> That's fun. That deserves an Eisner Award. Yeah. He should have sent the same letter to uh, Comics Journal. That feels like one that you would see in their uh, in their more typically contentious letters column. Man, again, some of my favorite stuff, just seeing ads for what's going on at the time. Yeah, yeah. Tom McQueenie from, uh, from Roach Mill yep. and some of the really cool issues of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, just became like straight-up ink slinger. Anchor dude, you know? 
Yeah, and I think that that's a lot of what his role was on uh, Roach Milk. Because he's still around. I'll see him pop up in comments and stuff in different places. And uh, often setting us straight whenever we're giving him credit for Roach Mill and how cool it looks. I think that he's at least like co-artist on there, if not just uh, inker. Yeah, yeah. Here's the thing, though. Like, whatever he touches turns to gold to me, man. Because he, cause he's worked with Alan Moore on some of those like ABC comics. I think, uh, uh, oh my goodness, it's, it slips in my mind. But uh, he'd be an interesting guy to do like a chronological, like let's go through your career. Because, like you say, Turtles, Indie Black and White Explosion books, now Wildstorm Image here in the mid-90s, Alan Moore in the late 90s, early 2000s. Like, that's a pretty good journey. Yeah, yeah, he's a QB also. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, because he was like sort of a legendary guy. And I think part of the legend was don't don't hold your brush too tight, man, because Tom McQueenie got tendonitis or something Ooh, like boy. that. Yeah, yeah that, that, that will put the fear in a uh, comic book artist or an aspiring comic book artist. I have this issue. I got. I actually yeah, got I this. That. I got that one off the newsstand at a uh, Giant Eagle. Like it actually had just like spinner rack distribution in that moment. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I can't help but think about like that Rob Liefeld shoot that we did, where he's talking about Alan Moore coming to, to Image Comics, and talking to Tom McFarlane, and McFarlane saying, "Yeah, Alan Moore's going to be writing Violator," and Alan Moore. I mean, uh, Rob Liefeld's like. Where did where did we go wrong? Because I'm reading something about Brandon Choi plotted the first issue, and Alan Moore's going to come in and add his own touches to that. Where did we go wrong? <laughs> what a collaboration! <laughs> Brandon Choi, luckiest man in comics. That is a that is quite a writer's room. <laughs> but I mean, I guess that's the beginning, probably, of your ABC line. I think that's Alan Moore's beginning at Wild Storm. Yeah. Time to pay some bills. Ed Piscor and I are working cartoonists. The best way to support cartoonists kayfabe? Buy our comic books. Red Room, Trigger Warnings. Issues 1 through 3 now available in comic shops everywhere, barring uh, 28 countries and I think 11 comic shops where it's banned. But you can ask for this and order it from virtually any comic shop. Who knows? They might pull them out from under the covers. Red Room Trigger Warnings 3, the second season of Red Room. Every Red Room cover self-contained. So pick up whichever one you find and you'll get a complete story along with Red Room. Anti-Social Network, the trade paperback of the first season, available now wherever books and comics are sold. Hulk Grand Design, Monster Madness, a retelling of the 60-year history of the Incredible Hulk. I am writing, drawing, coloring, lettering, the whole shebang, the Grand Design way. And this is available now in comic shops everywhere. Both issues, the complete story of the Incredible Hulk's rich history. Pick that up now wherever comics are sold. And back to our regular scheduled programming. Again, not a ton of stuff in here. This is interesting to me, Sovereign 7, because Claremont's getting, like, ownership of these characters that are going to be part of the DC universe, and maybe that's why we don't see them or they don't go on. But, I mean, this is that, like, mid-'90s, the sky's falling for comics, what are you going to do? And one of their answers is, Claremont, here's some creator ownership stake. Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, man, Chris, like, this ain't the deal to make. Because, like, just reading this... You have to have in your mind, congratulations, you own it. Now you're setting these characters in this universe with a whole lot of characters that you do not own. You can never do anything with this if DC doesn't let you. It might as well be work for hire. Yeah, I'd be curious what that was. As I was reading this, I thought, like, could he do a crossover with Image Character? Like, like could he do an Image-published crossover with Sovereign 7? I have no idea based on this. You know, like, that's that's me just wondering... Uh, but it does depend on the deal that he got. Yeah. You know, like, like the Vertigo deal 
was sort of touted as creator ownership. But like, I can tell you the deal I had with them with Plain Jane's was like a 50-50 split in terms of ownership. So you are a little bit bound with what you can do. You, you basically need both parties to agree to something for it to work. Yeah, and, but Plain Jane's ain't, ain't uh, running around That's with, true. With, with, with Green Lantern. And you guys were able to strike a deal and have that little brown book. Like, the work that would be done in this series can only be reprinted by DC Comics, pretty much. Unless some kind of, like, crazy deal is worked out. Now, I don't know how deep they got if you see Superman running around in one issue and Batman in the next or something. Because I was I was actually, like, <clears throat> kind of stoked on this. Like, oh, yeah, Cla- me too. Claremont's coming back. Yep. Team uh, book. They, they advertised it pretty heavily. And uh, I was getting the Wonder Woman comics by John Byrne, which we're going to be talking mm-hmm. about in a little bit. There'd be full-page ads, which is, like, the portrait of, like, these douchebag characters. Like, these are real boring characters. You can't, you can't even remember any of their names or anything. But, uh... They were pushing it, which which is atypical of like the big two, because like that was the whole knock on Epic Comics, right? Like like yeah, congratulations, you got your creator own deal. Marvel's is now buried orphans you. Like you guys are this island of misfit toys. They're never going to promote it unless you do it. Electra Assassin over at Epic or something. Like we'll we'll talk about that one, but we're not going to be talking about you know sex and violence or by the way, or like you think of like. You're coming from X-Men, yeah. super cool title, to Sovereign Seven. That's a shit name. It's not just the characters' individual names, which I don't know them either, but even as a title, that's a bad, that's a terrible title. As a little kid, Sovereign, like, Sovereign, like, I don't even know what that word, I feel, I feel like that's the first time I ever saw that word. It's not very exciting. Dwayne Turner's the artist, though, and I did like Dwayne Turner, and uh, had a pretty good run there for a bit. Like, he did a Black Panther series that was reproduced from his pencils, that was my first exposure to him. He was a time was like, that's cool. Yeah, and then did some Spawn stuff, so, looked good. Like, at the time, I thought it was a good artist to get on a book, but just, you know, it, it changed my opinion of Claremont, to be honest. I hear you. I, I've been uh, I've been catching up on my Comics Tropes uh, episodes, and Chris Pierce did an episode about uh, night, like like douchey co- <laughs> costume revamps of like the 1990s. Yeah, that's a rough looking costume. <laughs> <laughs> that's Thor. You know, this is another one of like imagine drawing that twice. Oh, totally. <laughs> no fun. But you know what, Diodato, he I think I, I'm not sure where he's from. I want to say maybe Argentina. Mm. Um, but he was one of those guys that was pretty touted. Like, like his image guys left, I felt like Diodato got a lot of shine at Marvel. He also, some of his indie stuff, or some of his stuff came through, like, Caliber. And some of it is amazing. Yeah. Like, like something to look up, uh, maybe if we do, I don't know, Black and White Explosion episode or something. Because I just picked up a few of those recently, and they are astonishing. The guy who ran the studio that kind of brought him in, because that's the kayfabe here, is like, there's like... There's like a dude that has a stable of guys with like, like Al Rio, like mm-hmm. like these dudes would be a part of this dude's studio, and that guy would always be at Pittsburgh, and I remember showing him stuff, and he's like, "Your work is good, but it's too old fashioned. You need to see. Do you see what Mike Diodato does? He used to he could draw that old fashioned style, but that's not what people are buying anymore. They're buying this kind of stuff, and and uh, you know he's showing off these these Thor pages and junk, and Chris Pierce whole thesis and what he is showing off is just like nature abhors the vacuum the image guys go away do their own thing and it was actually the artists who who were the exciting part of it but the lesson that marvel took from it was like metal 
shoulder pads, spikes, spikes, (laughs) frilly capes that, that like the hair excess disappears like behind the panel borders and stuff like that's the lesson they took. And boy, there are some silly examples. There, there was a armored uh, Spider-Man. Like I forgot about that thing. You get a big silver yeah. shell. Yeah, I mean, I, I just imagine it being, you know, it's it's rearranging chairs on the deck of the Titanic, but it's uh, <laughs> in a panic state. I think and there's by, another techno comics, by the way. And by, and, and, and by the way, if high school graduate Jim Rugg is still reading Marvel DC, like I'm taking you to the doctor. Yeah, right. That, there's nothing there for me. <laughs> Hulk Prime to meet in limited comic. Talk about stuff I'm not inspired by. Yeah, pretty whack. And and their whole their whole thesis is like, uh, you know, there's that uh, American Entertainment, um, the the mail order yes uh, service that you would see you would see its iconic ads in those like mm-hmm. 1990s comics. So what they're doing is they're getting some like real sort of basic guys. You know, they're not getting a listers to do this Hulk Prime comic. And they're only going to limit it to 40,000 copies sold directly through that one channel. Uh, it makes me wonder if if this is like some sort of largesse on the part of like Marvel. Like, or like is, is Marvel trying to make nice with some of the people they've done business with in the past because of the, the Heroes World issue? Because that's what we're in the midst of right here. Like, I think maybe last issue of Wizard, the Hero, Heroes World thing happened because we're going to be getting the commitment from DC comics um to get in a bed with diamond on probably maybe the next page so that's where we're at yeah it's all bad you know it's it's it's, uh the the burgeoning marvel malibu matchups i almost fell asleep saying that yeah you know it's 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 tough and then like they have the uh super premium autographed version 4490 can you imagine a comic that's worth i mean that i wouldn't buy this book for a quarter i know something that just is like coming out you know it's it's there's no no like page count or anything it's it's probably just a standard comic but it'll cost a whopping 14.95 just out of the gate yeah any uh any news any of these kind of like company news items stand out to you not nothing too much jumped out at me no here's uh here's a note the andromeda strained canadian distributor closes i make mention of that because i think the big story around this time period is really what's going to happen in comics distribution as things implode and so like this is one of those signs of that little aaron wiesenfeld cameo appearance that's always worth calling out in my opinion yeah i think so too shouts to cat and neil gaiman for hooking us with with tickets when he came to town last week man and uh, he's doing some readings uh, on behalf of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. And uh, the attendants pay between 10 and 25 bucks to hear him read some stories. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, oh, you know what is cool here? Is uh, he's talking about like working with uh, Dave McKean on an as yet unfinished uh, children's book. And I'd like to think that that's Coraline. Wow, that's interesting. I wonder it, if it is, if the timeline matches it, up. It might be that, like, uh, Goldfish, Werewolf, like, whatever that one is, but I'd like to think it's Coraline. Yeah. You know, like a little legendary hint. Man, I don't know what this is, this Stanley, the best of the world's worst book. Worst movie casting, John Wayne as Genghis Khan in the 1956 film The Conqueror. This feels like this should be like in the internet age. This might be the most popular book ever done. <laughs> it's just the worst. 
<laughs> the worst. The cover looks like a goddamn PowerPoint presentation <laughs> using totally the does. warp function. So I was I was looking at it, I was trying to figure out like is this a comic like what's going on here but I don't think it is I think it's more of just like a gimmick. Rhino, Rhino is awesome you know there's documentaries on Rhino and uh, so much stuff that I have and bought over the years is thanks to like Rhino I was gonna say Rhino Records but just Rhino in general because like. I don't know, man. Maybe the copy of Wild Style I have was put out by Rhino. I think uh, John Waters' movies were put out by Rhino. Man, that makes me wonder now. Like, do you think this is good? Is this entertaining? Well, it's always got the kitsch factor. And, right. And, like, if you participate in a Rhino thing, you're basically a, like a tchotchke. In a way, you know, you're a kitsch tchotchke. You're Betty Page, too. So, like, that makes sense. Stan Lee is that kind of figure. One of the big takeaways for me is, like, this is where Stan Lee is in the mid-90s. Right, he's sure. doing something like this. Yeah, yeah, it, it does feel stuff. like, I don't know, man. You think of Stan Lee, and is that something he's excited to do? <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't know that's coming out. <laughs> There it is. DC goes diamond. That's the other uh, the other piece in here in regards to the distribution stuff. And how much does he does Geppy Jeppy look like uh, John Belushi? It's funny you say. I was going to say Artie Lang. Yes, he looks more like Artie Lang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. But a huge domino that falls. You know, whenever you hear people talk about this whole distribution collapse, like. This is kind of the big one, right? Like we've heard, I think Eric Reynolds at Fanographics talked about kind of like waiting to hear the announcement of uh, what was going to happen with DC in terms of are they going to go exclusive with with one of these companies? What, what, what Eric what Eric Reynolds actually said uh, was Marvel goes to Heroes World to, to like do their own distribution. DC goes to Diamond. So what he was waiting for, and all the other publishers, Mike Richardson and them, it was like at San Diego Comic Con. And they were sitting there twiddling their thumbs while the Image Founding Fathers mm. were talking to the various distributors because the independents were hoping that they would go with Capital City so that, that, could, so that there could be, you know, the Marvel distributor, the DC distributor, and the independent distributor that, that like, and it have three healthy distribution companies now just because it's exclusive it doesn't mean that they can't distribute other stuff so that would have created a situation where there would be three distributors to handle indie books or whatever even though you know marvel has to stay at one dc has to stay at one but the indies could kind of spread their their uh weight around three different opportunities for stores to buy your stuff and ultimately image went with diamond and and we have you know the comics industry that we have now right yeah, big moves. And I get the impression, like, Wizard... Nobody understands exactly what this is going to lead to. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, these would be the whole issue if, if they realized, like, what, what the ramifications of this stuff was at the time. Spider-Baby Graphics, yeah. that's Steve Bissett's self-publishing imprint, so some tyrant information there. I also think of, like, Spider-Baby. They did a couple issues of, like, his horror comics compiled as Sp Spider-Baby Graphics, so kind of neat to see him working in that direction. And it's then also a, the Zirk Foundation uh, latest round of recipients. Yeah, no, no names I know there. I think Andy Hartzell's a name I, I've seen, but I can't, I can't uh, quote, quote any of his comics. But but it's not often that like I, you see a round of uh, Zirk winners and and you don't know a name or two. But like with the Tyrant thing, uh, it's noteworthy that he's doing some. There's like some gimmick work there. Yeah, you know, there's, there's a, a gold, gold edition. Gold edition. And uh, this will not be the last Tyrant piece for the, for this issue because there's going to be a solicitation for the never to come out tyrant number five right 
up and coming Gary Cody. I was into John Byrne at the time. This guy was doing like these. I, I don't know that they were digital paintings. It's oil but they paints. Were paintings were they oils? Yeah, over, that's what over it says top in the piece. of. Uh, burn pencil so it looked very burn like but it didn't have the black lines Ed, that you talked right. about with bisley on the cover very peculiar looking but you know he went through i don't know how long he worked with this guy but it was like there was an era of burn where this was the covers of like the creator owned books he was putting out and it did look uh, like computerish but it, you could see the burn in it and i don't know about you but i was always like i'd rather just have the burn yeah i kind of felt that way too i was not into painted comics at the time i don't know that i'm into them now either off the drawing board, this is all kind of like where comics are in terms of movies. And, I mean, they're doing everything they can to include this stuff. Like, Richie Rich gets a mention here. Interesting, some of these are kids. You know, like, you can see Richie Rich and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles coexisting in a, in a way. You know, as being like a kids, strong kids uh, titles. Yeah, absolutely, man. I, I was almost like, <laughs> man, did Andy Mangles come back to, like, write, write some articles or something? Uh, Tank Girl, I first uh, learned about from, from the movies, not the mm -hmm. comics. I, I didn't know about the, the comics Yeah, existence. I could see that. I think The Mask is a big one for uh, opening doors, I think, to the comic book adaptations. I yeah. think that surprised people how successful it was, and who knows, maybe all credit to Jim Carrey, maybe, because he, he was, was certainly on a roll he starting was, around then. Like, I mean, yeah, the, you're totally right, man. It was like Ace Ventura, Dumb and Dumber, uh, Mask, Batman Forever, like, and he be, he quickly became the $20 million man, you know right. remember? Like, that's what they used to call him and shit. But it's, it's funny to see just kind of like what is... Uh, you know, what, what comic book movies looked like at that time. Talking about doing a Crow sequel, but it wouldn't be Eric Dra Draven in the, uh, is the title character in a they, sequel, they, out of respect to Brandon Lee. Yeah, of course. They, they made about three, three or four of yes. those movies. Like, like one of the, uh, one of the flicks has the dude from, like a Hawaiian dude from Bro Brotherhood of the Wolf, if you ever saw that. Like, uh, badass dude. And I think there was even a TV show for a little yeah, while. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, right. like like around that Xena, Warrior Princess, like Hercules, Jack of all trades. Kind one, of one of my uh, meathead college friends got a giant crow tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> Wonder if he has any regrets about that today. <laughs> they're talking about the the Doom Four. They're talking about Prophet movies. Rob Liefeld in the game. Yeah, there's a lot of energy around it. I mean, it's not. This isn't the only article on comic book movies that we're going to see in this issue. Judge Dredd bought some ads this issue. Look at that Bill Sienkiewicz Judge Dredd art. Is that... Man, it really looks like Photoshop. It does look like Photoshop. I wonder if that's not the cover. You know what? It has Sienkiewicz's signature, yeah. so I think maybe he's like... I'm going to start an experiment yeah, digitally. I'm going to see what uh, this Dave McKean... I'm going to go Dave McKean. Yeah, could be. Either way, they paid some money. Yeah. All right, man. Wizard visits John Byrne in his Connecticut lair. This is kind of fun because you get a description, like going to visit him, you, you know, they describe in detail like all these images, original art that are on the staircase leading up to his uh, studio work area. It's pretty cool. Um, obviously a fan of comics and wearing it on the walls with some of this vintage Silver Age artwork. Yeah, you could go on uh, YouTube right now, man, and, and uh, look at the Sci-Fi Wire uh, videos where they're going to visit Burn at his studio and, and just going through like... He owns a two-page spreads from uh, Spider-Man, uh, Superman. Wow. Uh, he's He's got a bunch of Neil Adams, uh, Batman, like, you know, doing the origin of the character. Uh, he's In this article, they're talking about his life-size statues of the Predator. But in the, in the video online, you see he's got, like, life-size statue of the Gal Gadot 
Wonder Woman in his space. It's like his studio is uh, like a dentist office. You know, it's like in an office park somewhere. You know, like those windows that go from floor to ceiling, uh, the acoustic tile that you see in like those like little space. And it's just just effing huge, man. Do you know if it's still in this uh, same like... They say it's a 17-room, 1840s Connecticut home. It's not. Like, we've heard a lot about this spot. And uh, people, like, after after the gravy train goes away, uh, the word on the street is he basically just hung out in two or three rooms and kept those ones heated with a space heater. Because imagine heating yeah, a right. Connecticut mansion. Yeah, uh, especially from the 1840s. Probably not the best insulation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then uh, there's a kayfaber who actually hit us up and was like either like my uncle like lives there now or sold that place or like you know was a real estate person. there was some connection uh with with somebody out there in the audience who who has dibs on this crib somehow um i love this interview because it's with the most kind of successful people who could be the most candid and He's pretty candid in here, man. They ask him questions, and he's not beating around the bush in a political way. He's just talking that that's Mac, being pretty honest. Yeah, they do uh, like target shooting. It's this is a crazy kind of interview in a lot of ways. Like I feel like a lot of this stuff you just couldn't do today. All those photos of him with guns and stuff, and then they're gonna do a sidebar called target shooting, <laughs> and he just really takes aim at a lot of these guys. Pretty respectful towards uh, Frank Miller, but Chris Claremont. And uh, Jim Shooter, both guys that he feels sorry for, you know, and goes on to explain why. Tom DeFalco f- found himself in a place he shouldn't have been. Uh, Larry Martyr, I'd shoot myself. <laughs> like, wow. You know, stuff you just wouldn't probably, uh, probably wouldn't run today. The the Chris Claremont stuff is interesting to me because he said, he said that uh, Claremont should just bounce, should have just bounced from X-Men like when he did. Yeah. He said, he said that, he stuck around with it for so long because because it just uh you know he he died a slow death you know they did the peak work together and then it just fizzled out and his whole impetus for leaving the x-men was his own ego thing of like was the x-men that's selling or am i having some some influence on this like i have to go see and people followed him yeah, it's uh, it is interesting to think of where those two are at this stage in their careers because I mean they've both done pretty well since they split uh, on X Men. You know, he and Claremont because he talks about Claremont should have left, but also like it, because he wouldn't have sixteen years later wouldn't have been thoroughly screwed over by Marvel. That's fair, but Claremont got some pretty good checks out of the deal too. Yeah, yeah, know? for sure, man. And I think it's like uh, he he admitted that there's about seven hundred million. X-Men comics in print after all the reprints and all that kind of thing. Um, you ain't getting royalties on all that stuff, but you're getting royalties on the bunch. So you get kind of an overview. You know, he's talking, they, they get into like early on in his career, drawing Avengers and X-Men at the same time, get into Fantastic Four, uh, what that's like taking that over. Um, and then, you know, on to Superman. You know, it's really a career-spanning overview this interview they do mention that the giant size dracula number five uh is is his first professional work even though that uh wheelie and a chopper bunch uh, charlton comic com- mm-hmm. comes out before and we were taking a look at a bunch of coverless comics that i bought and you and i were going through stuff 
And it's like, is this Rudy Nebris? Oh no, it's John Byrne and Rudy Nebris. That's an interesting match. A lot of people commented, yo, that's John Byrne's first Marvel work. And it turns out they're like, nah, that's like his first post-fanzine artwork. So we're going to have to dig that one out and scrutinize that under the microscope sooner than later, I think. Yeah, what a what a strange find in a, in a box of coverless comics. Pretty good. And uh, Wonder Woman is the is the big deal. Yeah, it's what he's moving on to at this point. But it really does establish like what a career that dude has had. Oh, like sure. even up to this point, you know, mid nineties. Like, and it's cool to see the creator own stuff because I think this stuff was pretty successful. You know, whenever he's he's he goes in that direction for a few years, like I think that works for him too. So like you get the gamut of like big Marvel characters, big DC characters, success doing creator-owned stuff, and then, as you say, back to Wonder Woman. In that same Sci-Fi Wire stuff, there there are uh, conversations that he's having about, about Superman, and it kind of parrots the things that he's saying in this interview, where it's that old story, right, and we talked about it before, where you're getting wooed over to, like, participate in something, and all the editorial staff and administration is like, yeah, you're going to be able to shake things up. You're going to be able to, like, do some fresh stuff. Like, it's going to be exciting. Like, uh, we're, we're at a loss. We're, we're in desperation. Like, we need you to, to, to right the ship. And then he gets he gets the gig and, and is basically, like, Dick Giordano's like, we have two Supermans. We have the one that we license and we have the comic that you're doing. And basically saying, like, you can't, you can't do much with that. You can't shake things up all that much. Uh, he wanted to have a slow evolution of the character and 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 sort of build him that way, but they were like, "Nah, you you got the miniseries to do that, and then we got we need this to be Superman." When it goes on the stands, uh, you know, at the Piggly Wiggly, Superman better be Superman doing some it's, super things. It reminds me of Batman Year One. You wonder if this is revisionist history, where he's like, "I wanted to deal with Superman, who was new at it, who wasn't good at it, but was figuring out what he was all about." And that's that's where they say you get this the miniseries to do that, get him up to speed, and, and get him up to Superman that we all know. Uh, but I wonder, like, is that looking back and thinking, like, because it's very Batman year one, the idea of, like, we're going to show Superman learning to be Superman. Yeah, I mean, it was the revamp era, and, and that stuff was promoted as such. It's just, like, you know, his his version is the nostalgic bend rather than really sh- shaking up the, the formal play. This is the outline of walking up the staircase that's uh, filled with Silver Age art. Kirby's Fantastic Four and Captain America, Ditko Spider-Man, Neil Adams' Batman... Joe Kubert, Hawkman, Kurt Swan, Superman. That's, that sounds like a museum I want to walk through. I mean, his his studio is incredible. That's really cool. The uh, the Wonder Woman stuff. I actually had a uh, subscription. You know, I bought a bunch of that, and I can't remember if I had a subscription for it or not. But I might have. Like that might have been like one of my last subscriptions too. Like do you still I was, have the I issues was on board. I don't think I do. I'd have to dig, but I think I got rid of those when I purged. And now I'm kind of curious to check them out again. They they read really well. Like like I uh, religiously when those things would come in, it's so crazy. Like what year is this shit, man? Ninety five. I, I felt like I was still in grade school. I was definitely still living in Homestead. You know what? I didn't even think of that because I was thinking of this as like when we started hanging out in the early two thousands. No, ninety five. I don't even know where I would have been getting comics at that point. Yeah, like when I, I honestly probably from the strength of no, nah, it wasn't this. They must have been promoting it somewhere. And my thing was like, I'm going to use some birthday money and I want to get in on the ground floor of a John Byrne run because I would just get smatterings. Like when I was a little kid, like, like, uh, the, the Superman comics that I got were the ones he wrote, but like Mike Mignola drew them, Mm -hmm. you know, like issue 20, 15, something like that. Let me get in on the ground floor of a John Byrne run of comics and, uh, 
my subscription started with issue 103. Yeah, he's a, he's a really interesting cartoonist to me in that he's about as close as you can get to that wide, like a wide audience. Mm-hmm. And yet I don't think he's there. I think it's it's totally like the Wednesday Warrior kind of, that's that's it. You know what I mean? Like he, he I think he had broad appeal, but for whatever reason did not tap into that or exploit that to its fullest. Sure. Because he was, he's a traditionalist, you know, he's, he's a, he's the rock and roll express or something like that. Like, yeah. Cause he, he's very good. Like, I think his style often I'll see one of his comics and think that's what a superhero comic should look like. You know, like it has this, this quality. I don't know if I can explain it better than that, where if you were going to do superheroes for a wide audience, his style makes sense to me. Yeah. But I don't know that I would point to any of his comics and be like, that's the dark night of his comics. No, yeah, yeah. He's just, he's just not built for that. You know, like, all these long boxes behind us, they could be very corrupting sources uh, yeah. and, and really, like, lock your brain into a way of, of thinking. And and I think that, I think that's his deal. You know, he's, like, locked into that, you know, monster of the month kind of... Uh, Comic making. Yeah, comic book artist. And he, he mentions, um, like, Mike Mignola and Art Adams. You know, like, he's very critical, I guess, of that image generation, the Todd McFarlane, Rob Liefelds. And uh, he says, like, he's part of this generation that they just loved comics. Yeah. They weren't there to make money. And, and includes Mike Mignola and Art Adams as, like, the end of that generation and that kind of motivation, as opposed to the image guys that are there cashing in. Right. Um, yeah, throwing shade at each other is so weird to me. Like this ad, I'm often critical of the DC ads, but I'm down with that one. Yeah, it's probably because Kevin Nolan did the whole bit. Yeah, it probably doesn't hurt. But I mean, look, it gets the point across, right? A gigantic Superman, you know what you're looking at. Some of their, their ads that I would be critical of would be like dark colors on black. Totally. I just skipped through this, so if you have something to say. The only thing I'd say, so this is Roger Stern, I think, coming back to like a fifth Superman book. It surprises me that nobody has set up a writer's room. And, and I don't just mean back then, like even now in this era of peak TV that we live in, I'm shocked that there's not a writer's room approach to one of these franchises like Marvel, DC, even Skybound. I'm surprised they haven't done it because like there's so much experience now of people working in that writer room environment that it just shocks me that that isn't done they, because they're already team assembled books. It's not like you're taking away that the autonomy that comics give a creator. They kind of do in in a in a way in in like the sort of bottom-of-the-barrel comic book way of doing things. Uh, Yeah, I'm suggesting do it at a high level in that you have a million of these things done professionally. They they have their camps and stuff, so, like, there will be the Spider-Man retreat where where all the Spider-Man writers... But that's a world away from a writer's room. I'm saying, like, literally take the writer's room and apply it to a title or a series of titles. Yeah. And they did close with Superman. Part of the reason it surprises me that they don't is because they kind of did it with Superman. That's about as close as they got. Yeah. That's 27 years ago. It's like all we've done is is develop television and that concept of writer's room. Like, I mean, it's probably the most dominant creative thing now in, in our pop culture. And yet comics don't don't haven't tried it. And, you know, they have their their writers at like incubator writers that just come in and be like, this is what a movie version of this property would look like you know like they have these writers that are just doing that sort of thing it just surprises me it doesn't exist so speaking you know we mentioned the claim earlier in our letters column acclaim uh you know buying valiant and now they're putting out this punks book and this is what they do for an ad is throw up a couple of pages of this punks comic by keith giffen this anchor looks great on keith giffen to me claude saint aubin sure i love these chunky lines that that are like done with like the calligraphy chisel tip marker or something. You know, just flat edges. Blunt. 
It's sick. It's really cool. The color, the color looks good on it. Laverne Kanzerski on color, who I think did Lobo and definitely did like the uh, the other Giffen stuff, like Trencher. That was your colorist. I see. So I think a longtime collaborator with Giffen. Um, I have a couple of these punks issues. I don't know how many were actually printed. I think I have the first two. The second issue is really wild. It does stuff like this, where it's like really breaking your comic book storytelling. And uh, I'd be interested in looking at it just for that, because I don't know too many comics that do that sort of thing. Right. This is kind of funny timing, because I think the trailer for Sandman is, is out probably about the time that this video goes up. Yeah. There's some spot-on casting here, though. There really kind of is. That little poltergeist lady is despair. I mean, like, they chose two perfect Yeah, that's great. Images, man. That's really funny. Um, man, it makes sense of Winona Ryder and Johnny Depp at this time period. It feels like you could even maybe sign Tim Burton on to direct. Oh, totally. Like, it might as well Love be to see a Roddy Piper, uh, Roddy Piper call. Yeah. Rest in peace. So, these things are always kind of dumb, but again, just like, the, the timing is funny. I looked at this. Why is this terrible? <laughs> right? I, I'm so uninterested in it. These guys are just making money, you know? Like, it... They, it's so generic. They just don't care. Like the Steve Mazarskis don't know that. None of these dudes have any personality whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. You know that's '90s comics. Just like a bunch of like dudes like looking tough. Speaking of looking tough, <laughs> nice segue, Ed. Uh, I love this. This is hilarious to me. This feels like something that would be in the um, the Wizard uh, fanzine. <laughs> Adam and dude's just ripped up. That's a good arm, but we can do better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah very uh, very kind of a fun idea for a How to Draw Comics column. Talk about taking anatomy to a different level. And and who better, you know, than, than Greg Capullo? I, I don't know that we put the video out. Like, we've recorded it, we set it up, man, but it was the issue of Spawn that he did with the Savage Dragon crossover. And he, like revitalize that character in a way with like all the veins and, <laughs> and the and the the build on that guy so you know it's perfect like he, he started to grow into this he's a he's a he understands shit you know like he's showing you that's that's way cooler than george bridgman ever did man showing you the like the little lumps of meat that go into making a muscle and he clearly gets you know like this is i understand this better than what george bridgman did this is really all impressive to me in that he's very early in his career and yet it seems like he can really draw and understands this foundational underdrawing part. To to me it's it's even it's more advanced than like the wizard 15-year-old deserves. Cuz yes. cuz he's basically showing you like like you see the peaks and valleys of the veins and like the little shadows. Like that's what he's showing you here. Mm -hmm. Like here are the striations. Striations, right. <laughs> and here's like the piece laying on top. So that's like the shadows that you're seeing. And he's basically saying like, don't just be arbitrary with your detail. Like it makes sense. Like there's a logic to my stuff here. Henry Rollins. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's great. It's, it's incredible veins. <laughs> yeah. I was going to pull an eye of the storm issue. Cause I have at least one of these things. Look at how absurd that is. They even note that this is a, this is a page, this isn't a cover. It's page twenty-seven from issue number two. <laughs> <laughs> and what she do? She's holding a piece of glass that she's going to throw oh, or yeah. something. Is mm -hmm. that what that is? Yeah, fresh out of the shower too. Some of those suds are something. <laughs> All right, the drawing board. Always fun to see 
what kind of artists show up to win a piece of Nelson U Demon <laughs> art? Say say you won the uh, Nelson U Demon art. Say that you're Kevin Metz here. Uh-huh. I wonder if it's possible to call up Garib and be like, "Can I get just get the Max number six signed?" <laughs> <laughs> Making deals with the runner runner ups, but uh, the big runner up, of course, Ryan Otley. Invincible fame, uh, done a ton of stuff at Marvel over the last several years. I think he did the Kubert School Correspondence Course, mm. if I'm not mistaken, which I find really impressive. Uh, my grandfather became an electrician through a correspondence course way back in the day. Seems a little more dangerous than learning how to draw comics. <laughs> right. But uh, the correspondence course, I was thinking about it. They would, like, you'd mail in your assignments, like 11 by 17, right, and get marked up on tracing paper and stuff like that. Good bit of effort, I think. I think he was working a uh, day job and, you know, doing that in the evenings and stuff. So I commend him for that, but it's pretty cool to see, uh, you know, like a pro in here at this stage. During our life drawing classes, Sergio Cariello was the guy who was kayfabe in the, the Joe Kubert signature and, 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 and uh, critiquing. The assignments. I don't know that Joe saw any one of them, but like yeah. he, he mastered the Joe Kubert signature, and I remember thinking like, you shouldn't be doing that in front of us because I already feel like I'm being scammed a little bit here, and now that I see that you're running more game on people, it's like I just don't want to be here now. You know what I'm saying, man? But uh, the videos for these correspondence courses, you can find those online, and those are the treasure because you're watching Joe Kubert draw, and you're and you're and you're inside Joe's mind a little bit. Like the dude is practicing; he's looking at Michelangelo statues, and just drawing them and talking about like, I need to work more on my lats and 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 f- figure out the connection here. Like it's it's, I never remember it, so I always have to redraw it and that kind of thing. Like that's amazing. And that's to hear Joe somebody of Joe Kubert's uh, caliber and experience. Say. Exactly. That's really cool. Hey, I linger on this page for a minute just to point out, like, you see the American manga anime influence. Dojinshi, baby. You see what I think is all digital in uh, in this Hellspont piece. So, kind of neat snapshot of, like, what are people drawing with in the mid-90s? Can you imagine how long it would take to generate this thing in those old computers? Just accidentally hitting a paint bucket fill on uh, a shape that didn't have the lines connected and then you color the whole screen... Might as well go eat lunch, <laughs> and and then and then come back and hit control and undo. Ninety five. I mean, this is like Photoshop two. Maybe? I was thinking two. And plus, uh, your dad's got to be like a an art director that you even get access to, say, a Mac and Photoshop. The cost of that setup. I mean, we had that stuff in school, and the teacher was like, "Yeah, give it a try," but I don't know how, how, what to do with it. So our second uh, big chunk of comics, movies, news, Spawn movie in the works, Spawn HBO next year, uh, you know, as of this column citing. So Spawn really got off running in terms of like getting those adaptations onto screens and getting it on two screens. Whenever you see the list of other stuff that's in development that never made it anywhere. They mentioned Rob Liefeld's stuff uh, in, in here, uh, that things that were in development mm-hmm. and up to this stage... They said that Rob is uh, responsible for selling about 30 million comic books, like, through Extreme Studios. Uh, I bet Spawn sold at least that, like, just the Spawn title, you know, when you're accumulating, like, everything that you sell. So you got to make hay while the sun is shining. And Hollywood recognizes that, right? Like, like right now, there's, like, bored apes movies being created and stuff. It's like, you have to strike at that exact moment because next year, it's over, and it would have been over, like, if that Spawn movie would have come out 
a little bit later. The bloom was off the rose, and you know it wasn't it wasn't selling those those initial numbers. Certainly, when McFarlane gets off of it, it takes a while for for. We're going to see a really fun top hundred comics column in here in terms of Spawn. That's cool because I because I don't even. I think it's um, Spawn's the number one comic because they do like last year, the year before, and the year before. I think he's number one four years in a row. Yeah. In this one. Uh, which is amazing. Like, his run was really phenomenal. And I wonder, like, you know, he gets his stuff made compared to the Liefeld stuff that doesn't get made, but there's, like, five options discussed here. I wonder if having one character, one book, one focus helps in the getting it made. Or maybe it means nothing. Maybe it's Spawn was just more developed or the right person, you know, signed the option or whatever. But uh, I, I often wonder, because, like, this is so much of this stuff. Every issue of Wizard had yeah. versions of this column of, like, everything's in development. Outtakes from Hell gets a mention here. I think it'd be several years. I don't know if this was the deal because Oliver Stone is the one mentioned here. I can't remember um, who the actual production company was. Touchtone's pictures mentioned here too. So I don't know if this is the origins of From Hell, but it's pretty amazing that From Hell gets made if it is a different deal where it's like multiple studios went through From Hell and, and ultimately it does get made. There's your crow mention. All right, new kid on the block. 17-year-old comic artist Trent Canuga does the book Creed. Do you know anything about this? I have a couple issues of Creed. I've pulled out a dollar books. I remember that he was young, possibly. You know, I mean, this would have been the story that probably went through comics press at the time. Right. But I, I can't tell you anything else about Creed. No, not at all. Uh, everything I know about Creed, I, I learned from, from Wizard Magazine. Because this dude got some shine, like he he would be touted and, and recommended. And you look on at lists like the, the drawing board stuff, and then you get to this article. Like it makes sense. Like this would have been like half the readership's like dream scenario, right? Yeah. The kid plucked out of high school that gets his own book. Yeah, Hall of Heroes. I remember them, and I I, I pre-ordered a few of those from like Advanced Comics catalog because again, it was like these young dudes. They were sort of had that image imprint on them style-wise, and it was like, yeah, man, for sure. New characters, new creators, young creators. I was into that Doogie Hauser comparison in this article. <laughs> <laughs> Look at him using an old-school Wacom, dude. Yeah, that's interesting to me. And one of those, like, ergonomic keyboards. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I haven't seen one of those in a long time. I don't think I've ever seen one in real life. You're not missing anything. They might even be two pieces that you can arrange yourself. Does just, that sound right? Just seeing the uh, the imagery of like a penciled page, like this. This is like very motivating, very exciting to me growing up to see somebody like putting pencil to paper. It's it's a it's got its rough edges and stuff, so that makes it feel attainable. Yeah, it's a pretty strange looking style if you think of like image being the dominant style at the time because it's, it's not the muscled. Big care, you know, it's like a Bigfoot cartoon style. Yeah, it's it's Boof and the Bruise Crew image, not Wildcats image. The last paragraph is at this point, I'd love a page rate. He laughs, I would kill for a page rate. And he even says that, that like, I, you know, I'd, I'd like like to go to the Kubert School to learn how to do it the right way. Uh, that's that's totally coming from that insecure teenage perspective, where it's like you have your shot, your your opportunity. And maybe there's a little imposter syndrome where it's like, I know my stuff is rough right now. I would love to like get some guidance from a real hit. You also get a uh, initial print run of 7,000 copies that sold out December 1994. I always like seeing the actual numbers of some of this stuff. Me too, but they didn't follow up and say like, it now has a print run of 30,000 an issue or something like that. So I think that it maybe just like 
hold steady. Like, I'm still under the belief that that dude has some connection at Wizard or has some... Because he gets a lot of shine yeah. uh, over the next year or so. It had to be a good response, right? I feel like Wizard's fingers are on the pulse of that at this time. Sure. Uh, no cover. Four-color images gallery of comic book art. Um, this is in New York at the time, and they're running down their show. So Alex Ross, eight-page segment of Sandman Mystery Theater Annual Number 1. Adam Kubert art from Weapon X and Wolverine. Forceworks, Jim Califor. Uh, George Pratt from Sandman Mystery Theater. Mark Pasella from Dooms 4. That's a weird cross-section of stuff. Mobius. Um, Mobius, Batman versus Depre- Depressed Man. <laughs> Pretty wild, and uh, you know you can kind of see the layout. It looks like a fairly big space in this in this uh, storefront picture. Yeah, this is still that deal too, man. Like, and, and galleries still still have this thing where it's like you know no pictures, please. But I'm of the mindset of like just take some pictures. Like no, like it's gonna make people want to come. They're not gonna see like a low res photo in a magazine. And be like, you know what? This is enough. I don't have to go check it out. The weird lettering for their sign of who's uh, who's in there. Michael Zuli, Matt Wagner. I mean, they just got an intern to do that shit. <laughs> you know, it's just on a wet board or something. That's wild, because again, that real estate's got to cost some money. Do you know who Dave DeVries is? I that don't. name sounds familiar. Da- Dive? Dave? I can't even tell what the name is. I think it's Dave. Yeah. Kim Deach there. Yeah. Gary Gianni. I don't know Rebecca Gwai. No, Ted McKeever. I think we named everybody now on that list. Bite Me Fanboy. This is kind of fun. This is your uh, computer online message boards and forums that are up and running at the time. What stands out here, Ed? What stands out here, dude, is that we're not talking about websites. We're talking about these monthly services that you can subscribe to to get access to like a a version of of the internet basically and and uh on these things like CompuServe, Prodigy, America Online, the famous one you can have find like little portals to get to various things. So there's no www. to like get to any of this stuff. It's not the real internet. In fact, whenever Whenever um, they're breaking stuff down, and it's America Online, CompuServe, Prodigy, the internet gets its own piece, but it's still so early that that it's not even like worth talking about, you know? Because like websites, like there's 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 nothing to it. So these are these like little spaces, and and it's funny because what these would be, like the DC Comics Online. It would be a place where you can go, and uh, you probably hit this DC Comics thing right there, and it would might have like a toll free number that you could call to subscribe. <laughs> you know, it's that early. Like, there's nothing to do on these things, man. And and just like the only websites and shit that were worth anything were fan made because they were still completely of this mindset of brick and mortar. So like, they don't don't give anything away. It's all just basically indicia. You could you could like log on and like check in indicia for DC Comics, like all the people who are a part of it. Uh, it's still going to be five years, man, before like the the comics cruise and like before dot com money starts really coming in. 
This is about when I go online, 95, like mid-95. Mid for yourself late, or through school? Through school. Yeah. It's like it's when I got my first um, email account yeah. and, and access really to computer labs. Did you have the uh, the email where it's like Pine, Finger, like all that kind of shit? No? No, you, mine you was mix? like ASBX95 or something. <laughs> you know, some <laughs> randomly generated, you know, for, for all the students, I guess, would have gotten them. The, the, the Pit kids had, had Unix email, and that's where you would have to, like, if you want to look through your email, you had to type Pine. Uh, and then you could like scroll down and then finger to like open one up. It is funny that like they have all these user A, user B examples. They're all critical. Like it, it's kind of the language uh, that has continued throughout the internet. Like somebody, either they're both crapping on something or one of them is excited about something and then the other one is crap. User B is coming in and shitting on why that's no good. Yeah. Yeah. See, <laughs> see like I feel like passive we're... aggressive. <laughs> It's because funny. because we're we're like children of the internet and in, in that way where it's like we we are the last people to have like a life before it and then you get on it and everybody just like a, a, like appreciates the anonymity of it and being able to be assholes like I feel sort of immune to like the only difference now is people are comfortable putting their venom out under their own like born names. You know what I'm saying? But it's all the same, and it's you can replace user A here with. Uh... We'll say this is me. How come it says Neil Gaiman's Mr. Hero and Gaiman doesn't even yeah. write it? It's a scam and a load of BS. And then user B, Ed, will just put your name in there. <laughs> and Techno's launching more books with the Gaiman name attached to him, and he ain't writing any of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, Joe Quesada, John Byrne, and Todd McFarlane all getting uh, props and then taken down a notch. I love this right here, man, because you know if if like we were looking at this in real time, that barbed wire would have like little shines <laughs> and it would probably be moving. There might be like a I little so. animated shine on that. Yes. And uh, there might be a MIDI file playing. It's like. That's hilarious. I, I This is amazing. I love it so much. Yeah, it's a different time period. Everybody just trying to figure out the Internet. I remember for a while too. I think Wizard was including like the um, AOL CD-ROMs. Oh yeah, that's true. Like, uh, that's true. You know what? I, I have some over there. I, I might, I might actually have one or two. I, I might have to pop one in and see what happens. <laughs> Man, your computer might smoke. Yeah, you have to have like an external uh, CD drive to, to use one of those things now. Toying around, I don't really have anything for toy stuff here. If anything stands out as we're flipping it, just just stop me. Yeah, I think I think we've 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 mined this. Uh, Chasm. Their game reviews, some biz, not Bisley art. No? No. No. Uh, it's one of those guys. One of those 2000 AD fellas. This Palmer's Picks uh, makes me laugh because it's an Eddie Campbell column. Recently in Wizard Mega Fanzine number uh -huh. two, Tom Palmer shows up and talks about Palmer's Picks. Eddie Campbell's somebody that he covers three times, one of the artists that he covers the most. This one focuses on Bacchus and also on um, Eddie Campbell self-publishing which um, I have a big clip of his self-published comics. It's uh, Eddie Campbell Comics or something, I think is the name of it. His name's definitely in the title. Self-publishing imprint, Eddie Campbell Comics. I've got like 38 of them. I don't know how long it ran, but it ran for a long time, and it would serialize new and old stuff. Um, Bacchus is like his superhero Greek god mythology title, which is pretty fun. I, I like it a lot. Some Kirby influence there. That's what I have about... 20, 30 issues of. Yeah, I, I think those are really good. And they're they're so interesting because, like, he was an influence on Aphrodisiac because he would do these stories and, like, Dark Horse Presents would have, like, a three-part eyeball kid story that would be part of a bigger whole, but they would be appearing all over the place, you know, in whatever 
outlets were available and then ultimately published by him or top shelf and i thought that was really cool and i kind of did that with um aphrodisiac and that i would get like oh do you want to do an anthology story be like yeah let's do this character and eventually that that generates enough material to be a book or at least the uh, basis of a book but uh i was a big eddie campbell fan he, he was a one big, of the one of the alternative guys I, I got into and was like, yeah, this stuff's cool. He was a big influence uh, to a lot of independent creators around this time. His name would be mentioned often uh, as an influence, like in in these Palmer's picks by by other cartoonists and things. And I and his his artwork is a um, it requires a little of a more like sophisticated eye because like as a little kid, I'm yes. like, oh, it's so scratchy, right? Like I don't quite get it. Um, but I got a hold of, there's a two-volume set that Fantagraphics put out, an anthology set of, like, the greatest comics of the century, some, something like that. And uh, there's an Alex story in there. And that's that was the revelation to me, like, reading that one, because it was still scratchy, but the gestures, like, all the proportions were there, and you just see the scratchy line, and it just it blew my mind to see some of those alex stories too is him doing stuff with screen tone yeah it's, it's just, just phenomenal you know like he, he is that mixed media kind of guy articulate like whenever i started seeing comic stuff online like he would write critical stuff about all kinds of stuff comics history craft process all that so the other two columns that he writes on eddie campbell i believe one is from hell his collaborative amazing collaboration we covered on a channel so you can check that out i think there's a playlist because that's a big ambitious book and then the other stuff, the Alex stuff, the uh, autobio stuff, which I think was the first work of his that I read. It's definitely what I connected to first, like King Canute Crowd was a big one. Um, but just an outstanding cartoonist and really a guy who exists outside of the normal classification. When I think of alternative comics, I think of guys like Klaus and Chris Ware. Eddie Campbell, very different what he what he looked like, his his art. Absolutely, man. In uh, in Tom's picks, man, he's talking about bulletproof. This is the Gary Dumb Joe Zabel comics. I just actually picked up this issue at the at the Ides sale. That's a wild cover. Yeah, it's I cool. have that one. Those guys, uh, those guys make good comics together. Yeah, I, I I probably got it at Space, which I think just ran its last show, small press show out of Columbus um, that I started doing in the early two thousands. First first time Street Angel appeared was at Space, but that's where I met uh, Gary Zabel and picked up some of his or Joe Zabel and picked up some of his um, comics. Might have been Gary Dumb that I met, but either way, I that's met, where I first came in contact with their work. Yeah, I met Zabel there. Never met Gary Dumb, and I think he was an early 3D comics guy too. Oh, was oh, doing yeah. like illustration with 3D software. Uh, in, in my uh, very first published work with Harvey Pekar, um, the our movie year book. Yeah. There's there's some of that 3D poser Joe Zabel comics, and I'm like, Do you ever talk to Picard about that? He must have been weirded <laughs> out by that. No, no, but but it's definitely bleeding edge, you know. Like, I there's just an he just didn't do the final step that basically these fucking hacks do these days, where you set it up and then you trace it off mm. and and ink it, but it's still that same static, yes, boring kind of you know posed out thing. The uh, the manga column talking about where to get manga and anime yeah. if your comic shop doesn't have it and it's it's like mail order. Uh, have alternative like dude here's the bitch of it right be patient personal checks take time to clear this stuff is coming from Japan yada yada use a credit card have the balls to do that choose alternates because popular things run out quick but how about this for like a little um, sort of snapshot in parentheses. 
one of the stores even has a web page has a page on the World Wide Web. Yes, <laughs> I love this, man. This is this is this is why we we come here, man, to like uncover these old time capsules. You know, and it's not that long ago. Like, if you're really into anime and manga, like you had to do some work in 1995 to track down the stuff you wanted. Yeah, absolutely, man. And and it would be like there would be those those guys who they were just juiced in. I remember seeing like getting from my homeboy Dave the. VHS copy of a copy of a copy of of Daikon three or four, <laughs> right? Where where it's uh, just the opening of a otaku convention, and they just bootleg animated Alien, Star Wars, wow. uh, X Men, like Spider, so cool. like all this shit, dude. It's like a two three minute thing. It's it's the Gynax people, the people who did Neon Genesis Evangelion. Uh, they did this animation for like they did two years worth of it, man. Where it's just the opening to the thing, and it would be an event like where everybody shows up and on a big thing, it's like boom, release oh, yeah, it, of course. and you have this amazing bootleg, probably the best looking Boba Fett you ever seen animated, the best Xenomorph, maybe the only Xenomorph you ever seen. Wild, yeah. Uh, pick of the month, Gunsmith Cats. I'm a fan of Gunsmith Cats. I don't know how that's crossed my path, but I ended up with like uh, a couple of the big collections of it. There's mm-hmm. so many of these things too. That's the thing, uh, dude. But it's it's incredible because like you have your very manga anime style lead characters, but then you have these cars that look spectacular and all the guns that are just they must everything must be photo traced or something because yeah. it's perfect. But it's but it's. Uh, you know, the other piece is just this cartoony element, and it's really fun. They're bounty hunters in I, Chicago, which makes me laugh, too, that they're in Chicago. I, like, I needed Masamune Shiro to happen, because I was never into, like, the big, uh, the big eye stuff was such a turnoff to me. So, like, Kamui Comics, Masamune Shiro, Katsuhiro Otomo, like, they're still my guys, you know? Yeah, and I they, came to this much later. This was not 1995 that I found Gunsmith Cats. This is like 2011 or something. Yeah. Somebody handed me a stack, and I was uh, very readable. And and then when you, like, get it, find this stuff, it's like, there's like 13 volumes of Oh My Goddess by the time you discover, like, yes. it's like... I'm not going to get 13 volumes of this stuff. Once again, it helped that somebody, like, handed me a couple of these volumes. Yeah. It might have come from Brian. Jimmy, this might be it. Yeah, I think we are near the end. There's a couple of things towards the back. So, you're, Oh, picks, picks from the Wizard's Hat. Uh, comic Watch. Good and cheap. Miracle Man 1 and 2. If you got on this train at this time, pretty good stuff. Although, those late volumes might have already been expensive. I don't know when those got no, up they're, in price. They're, they're, in the, they're in the back, you know, mm-hmm. like in the price guide. And uh, everything is still very cheap. If, if, in fact, you know, Miracle Man 15 is still a cover price book. In terms of value, there will be there will be an issue where fifteen is here, and then when you go back there, that's when the price increase just starts. I if feel you, like if you got on here, like this was a good deal. Yeah, because this is a I, I think one of the great superhero series. So if you were able to buy them at an affordable price back then, and shouts it's a to real standout. Shouts to the K Fabers who, who who sent us copies of fifteen. That was the only issue I was missing, man. Uh, picks from the Wizard's Hat, Blood Feud, interesting because Alan Moore writing Spawn, Tony Daniel, Kevin Conrad on art. There's some Alan Moore layouts, I think, in the back of yeah. at least one issue of this series, so that's kind of neat. I think it's three issues, and I definitely have all three, but I can't find the third. So if you have issue three laying around, we might have to put this under the microscope. I'll have to dig and see what I've got of that. I have some of them, but I don't know if I have a complete run or not. I definitely do, but it's a needle in the haystack looking for issue three. This Godzilla ongoing series, they talk about like upcoming stuff, and I think Art Adams is writing issues 5 through 8. I don't know if that actually happened or not. I wonder what Brad McKinney's uh, Godzilla looks like, because this is, this is Art Adams we're looking at right here. Mm-hmm. 
and Godzilla's a tricky beast. That is true. Easy to get wrong. If anything else in here really stood out, Tyrant issue say, five. Uh, okay, yeah, that's good. There's a stray bullets issue four is in here, so give you that snapshot of where they're at. Um, you know that self-publishing moving movement really starting. And Tyrant five, I think things don't collapse for a little bit, but he may just be behind schedule. Is why we don't end up with a Tyrant five. You mean he's still working on it? <laughs> is that what you're saying? Uh, Gen 13, 13 cover variants. Do you remember this gimmick? Absolutely. I, uh, I, they must have, they, I don't know what the ratios were, but I feel like this is something I never ever see anywhere, the variant covers of this series. So right. it must have been done in a way that they were, I don't know if incentive is the word back then, but much more rare than like your regular standard, uh, I think one and two here are your standard covers. Right, yeah, I just got the very first one. But I, but I, you know, I love it because it's the it's the snapshot of ni- 1990s. This is pretty ahead of its time. The blank cover, first one ever. I feel like. Yeah, man. I think it might be. Yeah. Like that's mind blowing. A paper doll. There were like the there was Janet Jackson, but there was also um, Demi Moore mm-hmm. doing the the Wonder Bra thing. That reference is lost to me. I, I I don't know what that is, man. What's it say here? Victoria's seven? Secret catalog parody. Uh, yeah, it was a little. Too little to be seeing that. See shit. that? I, I can see that selling. Uh, if you understood what the what they were parodying, then uh, I think that would have a marketplace with wizard readers. Yes, so good, man. Like uh, Bisley, heavy metal, mm-hmm. Spider Man one. You got Art Adams to do something. Is is this Dave McKee? No, no, no. <laughs> I was gonna say it can't be Sandman parody, but yeah, it's very strange. Like most of these covers, I have never seen in person. No. All right, top one hundred. So. Ed, this is what I'm talking about. Three years ago, Spawn number one. Two years ago, Spawn 13. One year ago, Spawn 22. This year, Spawn 32. That's incredible. Yeah. That That's, you know, four years, 37 months worth of Spawn pretty much being the number one comic. Incredible. I wonder, what a run. Yeah, I wonder what happens. I mean, obviously, McFarlane goes away. Like, I bet the a giant readership dropped off. When he quit drawing the thing. I would love... I wish they had numbers next to each of these. Yeah. Because that's the other thing. Like, at this point, even the number one book, you're selling 10%, something like that, 20% maybe, of what you were doing three years ago. Yeah, still a couple hundred thousand, probably. Uh, I'd like to know. You know, maybe it's 150,000. I I really don't know what the number one would be there. I wish they had that information. Back issue stuff. They're acting like the back issue market is still on fire. I think they even start that way. Uh Comic comic world, market world, is turning significantly hotter in many areas. So things are still good, at least they're reporting them as still being good. Yeah. I don't have any standouts here. I uh, Burn on both both lists. I mean, the writing's a joke. Because your book ended by, like, two real writers. And then you just have, you just have to put somebody... Brandon Choi up here, number three. Alan Moore was lucky to team up with him on that, uh, that Wildcats issue. <laughs> yeah, maybe it maybe learn some Alan stuff. Moore to the 10th spot. <laughs> Like, what a fucking joke. Kelly Jones on Batman here in the top ten. Pretty fun. Always fun to see that snapshot. McFarlane's still kind of like the uh, the old dog there at the top of the artist list. Which is a big joke because he's not drawing shit. Yeah. He's done, he's been draw, done drawn for a year. And ink in Greg Capullo doesn't count. Yeah. All right. Price guide stuff. Nothing I need to look up in there. And... There's an ego column. 
business as usual. Todd McFarlane asking fans to send in what makes their comic shop good, why they go to that comic shop. Some uh, some talk about how some shops discourage people from buying certain books. Yeah, and, and, and being perplexed by that. Like, if you're in business, like, right. isn't the gig to, to, to sell product? And, of course, this is... Well, like, of all the culprits of 90s speculation, uh, certainly of the image guys, McFarlane was the the least of the uh, sort of... Yeah, he didn't do 13 variant covers. Yeah, and and no chromium, like, had one title. You know, it, it took a while before, like, spinoff titles happened. He would just, like, put a lot of focus into one thing. And uh, Wizard Profile, Amanda Connor. Kubert School graduate. Oh, yeah. Or at least a student. Yeah, oh, yeah, I said she graduated, yeah. Yeah, worked at a color separation house. I wouldn't mind hearing more about that. An apprentice for a year or so to uh, Bill Sienkiewicz. Uh, one of those things, including being uh, modeling for Electra Assassin, uh, which she says was fun. Um, interesting career she has had. Yeah, absolutely, man. Like, it, like you could still find those, like, the, the Barbie comics. And... You know how Carl Barks is like the good duck artist? Mm -hmm. She's like the good Barbie artist. Yeah, it's pretty fun. Uh, we read another one of her books this week, so I thought it was like real synchronicity to get to read this column and, and kind of see uh, some of her background. She did uh, this crazy comic with Steve Gerber, like suburban ninja, oh man, housewife assassins or something. That, that's not it the right It was a Marvel book. Yeah, it was a Marvel yeah. book. as a one-shot. It's very, very strange. Um Talks about sneaking people into those Barbie comic like backgrounds, you know, drawing, uh, drawing, drawing real people into those. So, pretty fun stuff. And then, um, I don't know, relatively typical favorite comic of all time, Daredevil one eighty one, which is neat to think of her modeling for Elektra, and then that book being a real significant book for her. It it seems like, you know, you, I'm looking at her bibliography here, or you know, stuff that she's worked on. And it's like, it's all these weird like like gargoyles comics, Marvel's musics, rock video girls. Like, give this guy, give give this girl a job, man. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I feel like career wise, she's done well since this profile, and I don't know when she would have been Kubert um, school, like how long she was in the industry at this point, but pretty good career, I think, since then. Yeah. And uh, Spawn Thirty Two, the new costume. Yeah. And then What's different about this costume? Just these things, <laughs> and a little gauntlet on the wrist. That's it. Yeah, not not too different. Man, we still squeak, squeaked an hour and a half out of this, man. You know, I, I don't know how Ed, and I don't. I feel like I damaged myself going back into <laughs> some of these wizards. You know what's funny is uh, in the letters column here, uh, they they were mentioning before they started printing the letters that it shocked them. That like one of the great one of the most popular articles that they had in recent time was uh, an article about trademark and copywriting your your characters and artwork, and then they had some other feature that was like a kind of casting call kind of thing, and that article like shit the bed, hmm. uh, but they so so they were completely wrong like they thought that the copyright thing was gonna was just gonna be nothing. And this other thing was funny to them. So that's the first like true indicator that like they're fully out of touch because they start to Roman Reigns. Yes. They're the <laughs> shit that they like in house. Right. And then that's 
what makes this magazine just like a complete piece of toilet paper eventually. But I'm telling there's still good stuff there. We're going to get the Randy Bowen, uh, how, how to sculpt uh-huh. like 13, 14 parter where he makes a Boba Fett statue. <laughs> All right. You see every piece. We still haven't done the Todd Klein lettering. Yeah. I look forward feature. to the Todd Klein lettering. Like they, on my, uh, they, good they, list. they get good stuff in here, man. But, uh, there is a lot of, uh, Stuff that ain't for people who want to grow up to make comics. It's interesting to look at these things and see, like, what holds up and what is, like, something that's a perennial or... And there's almost nothing. Yeah. You know, like, it's a dark period in comics. Like, for all our criticism of, like, oh, the distributor deals crushed comics, sure, but also, like, the product that is being made or or marketed at the high level, not a lot there. No. Not at all. And I'm trying to look, because, like, Sandman is still going on. And it's in the 50th spot of the top 100 for, for the stuff that sells. And, you know, that, that is like the, the one big 90s comic that, that, has, that is a perennial that I could think of, you know, that, that still gets reprinted and reprinted all the time. Yeah, the other one that I was wondering is Bone. Does Bone crack this top 100? Yeah, I don't see it here. And it could be an off month. I think that was a bi-monthly book, and depending on like trade paperbacks and stuff, like I I don't know that that was a monthly title every month. Um, but also, like, if you're self-publishing a comic and it sells thirty thousand a month and doesn't crack the top hundred, you're doing great. Yeah, that's true. And yeah. obviously, I think Bone, where it really comes through, is certainly as a perennial, is in collections, and yeah. books, and things like that over the years. Yeah, but. so that's like the two titles really that 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 have some merit that existed in this time. And and that's the kind of stuff you have to be thankful for because that's another fun game. Like if you just went through here and said, what books are still published? It's like spawn is still published. Savage dragon 13 comes in at number 72. That's still published. Very few of these books. I mean, how many other of these books have been published continuously since then? Yep. So many of them were stopped and relaunched. If you know, if they continued at all, it's kind of wild. This might be the only two books that uh, have continued to be published since then. Fascinating. That's weird. <laughs> well, good, good. one more uh, Wizard Down. We're in the middle of 1995, and uh, we'll be back. We'll look at more Wizards. Yeah, why not, man? K-Fabers, like, follow, subscribe to the YouTube channel, hit the bell. We'll notify you when new vids are available. What's out there, Jimmy? Hulk Grand Design Monster and Hulk Grand Design Madness are in comic shops everywhere while supplies last. Pick those up. Uh, join me on patreon.com slash Jim Rugg to see how I make comics. And we're both going to be at Heroes Con in Charlotte in June. So uh, come check us out there. Yes. Uh, Red Room Trigger Warnings, issue one, two, and three on the stands right now. Anti-Social Network trade paperback in stores right now. Murder on the Dark Web for Fun and Profit is the name of the game. Every issue is completely self-contained. So if you see it, give it a sample. If you like it, grab another. You can order those comics at my pay, at my uh, link tree in the description below this video, uh, or you can hit up my Patreon and read the comics right now today for the price of $3 for the archive, banned in 28 countries, banned in 11 comic shops. What else do we have out there, Jimmy? Subscribe to the Cartoonist Kayfabe newsletter at the links below this video. You can also find Cartoonist Kayfabe t-shirts and merchandise at the links below this video. That's another great way to support the Cartoonist Kayfabe channel. Given those marching orders, we'll be on our way, Jimmy. Read more comics.